HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hi, how are you? My name is Andrew WK. They say when things are very delicious, it must be Heritage Radio. We talk about food. Talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
All right. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. And I'm the other half, Darren Bresnitz. Uh, welcome. That was just welcome. Michael Daves, uh, who will be live in studio. Uh, we weren't sure which version we were going to get, the bluegrass or the, the rock and roll version, but uh, I'm quite happy uh, that we're going to have the bluegrass, bluegrass version in later today. But first off... Tracy and Josh from Kings County Imperial, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Um, we are doing our ninth annual kickoff uh, barbecue blow with you on Tuesday, which we're very excited about, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah. first and foremost, um, we're going to talk about the important issues here. Who is the better fisher of the two of you? Ooh, salt or fresh water? <laughs> mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'd say... I, I'd say Josh gets the saltwater nod, and I probably get the freshwater nod. Yeah, she she goes for the for the uh, I go for the surf casting, and she goes for the fly line. Um, What's the uh, largest uh, fish you ever hauled in? Me? Yeah. The lar- the most impressive fish I ever hauled in was a 19 pound bluefish, but it wasn't wow. the biggest. But a 19 but for a bluefish, and I was. 12 years old, so that made it even more impressive. I mean, you won an award when you were like 15 about this. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm world famous for my fishing, angling skills. No, but I mean, I, I feel like, like, I mean, that has to be a world that, like, you have, uh, you know, that has paid off those skills, you know, as life as a chef. Well, for sure. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite things to cook is fish, so. Um, where did, I mean, yeah. for both of you, it, it is rare that two uh, partners have, like, I mean, if you had various hobbies be fine but to, to both be uh you know accomplished and uh, albeit different types of bodies of water uh it, it's interesting that that you two found uh found that commonality well tracy sp- used to spend 180 days a year in in the in the woods so she sort of had no choice but to but to find that interest why 180 why so specific you know greg i used to teach outdoor education for uh, an organization called Knowles, a national outdoor leadership school, and we'd lead 32-day trips into the remote wilderness of uh, North America and really around the world. So we'd spent a lot of time uh, pursuing outdoor endeavors, as you can imagine, and fly fishing was one of those. So I spent a lot of time alpine fly fishing uh, in the yeah, wilderness of Alaska and Wyoming. And have, you, have you two been able to trade secrets or tips? Uh, Based on your various like uh, fly fishing experiences, have we have we actually ever gone fishing together? Yeah, we fish we fish in Wyoming <laughs> together. <laughs> right, 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 right. We do. You guys go down to the uh, East River, right? Haul in a couple of uh, yeah, 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 exactly, that, right. That's our secret fish. That's our secret for low food costs. <laughs> that's the secret one. We pull everything out of the Gowanus. Oh, we might have to put that on tap for the summer to to take a fishing trip somewhere. I mean, a little busy, but I mean, it seems like you know it, it would be worth the trip. And then, and and I mean, among the million accolades, also Tracy, um, you have like um, awards from like the yacht world. Oh. Yeah, Which is no. like, I mean, I mean, this is an award-winning show, you know. I'm just saying, uh, but to have two illustrious things, I mean, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, can you talk just a little bit about your yacht past? Because sure. when I look at you, I think that's someone who spent a lot of time on a yacht. Yeah, right, right. I have that look about me. It feels like a different life. It really does. I spent about nine years as a private chef on the super yachts, which you could, you honestly couldn't get any more extreme from going from the from the wilderness of Wyoming to the super, um, you know, flashy lifestyle of the super yachts. But yeah, I worked as a private chef on very large boats uh, for a good number of years in the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, and uh, I have a lot of stories. We'll have to talk about it over a beer sometime. One story. Yeah, yeah like, like one half story. a story. Come on. Wildest, oh. like, food request. God, oh, wildest food request. I was working for a family of exiled Kyrgyzstani royalty. Um, they as, had, one, as one does. As, as, you <laughs> as do, one does. As you do on the super yachts, they had rented or, or chartered, it's called, a 220-foot super yacht. And we were in the remote areas of the of the West Indies. And, you know, everything is brought on board beforehand because you, you spend a sure. lot of time out at sea. Anyway, I had a request one night for Domino's Pizza. Pizza. And I mean, honestly, like there probably wasn't a Domino's pizza within 10,000 10, miles. And I sent 
back a message with the stewardesses, and I said, well, that's not possible this evening, but I'd be more than happy to make homemade pizza. No, no, they wanted Domino's pizza. Anyway, we it, through a lot of back and forth with, with the captain and with the stewardess, we finally got the message across that there wasn't going to be any Domino's pizza, but I, oh, that was very... Oh, <laughs> oh wait, Domino's doesn't have that, like, helicopter that just, like, <laughs> just, like drops. Yeah, oh, yeah. Domino's. Yeah, yeah, that's what they wanted. You anyway. should have just rustled up a Domino's box. Yeah, right, right. Anyway. Um, well, I mean, it'd be great to also, like, you know, just kind of talk about, like, where you two began to cross paths, because you two, we could easily spend a show on each of you, because you have such amazing backgrounds, but, like, let's start with, like, the shared history of, of where you first yeah. kind of uh, cross knives, if you will. Well, ironically, we Ooh. met at a Chinese restaurant. I was a sous chef at a restaurant called A Single Pebble in, uh, you know, mid-northern Vermont, and we both went to culinary school at New England Culinary Institute, and Tracy came on board because she liked the process of making Peking ducks. She was very when she came in for her interview, she was struck by the by the ducks by the hanging ducks in the kitchen, mm. and uh, that was our first our first culin- our, where we first met there, and that was our first culinary interaction as well. What is uh, your like the secret to a good, making good Peking duck? Well, strangely, we actually don't make it because it no, is... I, I know it's not on the yeah. menu, but I'm just saying. It's like a two-day process. It, well, you it's... really do it. It's marinating, it's uh, separating the skin from yeah. the flesh, and it's the wood, the fruit wood that's used right, um, right, in right. the process. So you have to have a duck that has all of its parts intact, so it has to have its feet on, its head on, uh, because when you blow the duck up, you can do it with a simple bicycle pump if you wanted to do one bu- one duck you sort of pierce a hole in the skin towards its neck and you blow air into it. And the skin actually separates from the flesh so that when you hang it, um, that fat theoretically drips down while it's cooking and you get really crispy skin and really moist flesh mm-hmm. and you don't get like a thick layer of, um, of fat as we all know duck has a lot of fat. You know, I, I have to respect the fact that, um, and this sort of goes into your history and, and your approach to... The restaurant that you know what it takes to do it, you know the process, and you're saying if we can't do it right, we're not going to do it. We're going to focus on doing other things right. Well, yeah, and it's like you said, it's a two-day process, so it's a very sort of you know like on-demand type of thing. When I yeah. was growing up, like the, a lot of the great Peking duck restaurants in in New York, um, you know, you had to order your duck 24 hours in advance. So yeah. you know, we've toyed around with that idea, but right now we're just focused on. On making, uh, ma- doing what we have as well as we can. So from so from Vermont, where did you two go next? From Vermont, gosh, I'm trying to think. I, I think I went to New Zealand for a little while. Well, I, first, I, we traveled in China for a long time. That's right. That's and right. Throughout Southeast Asia, which is crazy. And and you cooked on one of the trains, right? Yeah. Well, we took the train. Basically, it was the Mongolian Railway, except it was on the China side. Right. So it wasn't like one long continuous journey. It was like lots of little hops. Yeah. And we found some of the food on the trains, even though we couldn't really read the menus, couldn't communicate with the staff. We found the food to be unbelievably good. That was like prepared on the train. It was prepared on the okay. trains. They had walks on the trains. They okay. had chefs on the trains. I mean, it wasn't like what? imperial cuisine, but it was really good home-cooked Chinese. And so one day we were just like, you know, through sign language and other ways you communicate when you're in a foreign country. We just we just muscled our way into the kitchen and had them show us some some stuff and we it was cooked, a, cooked it was on a, the train all the way from basically from Beijing to um, to, to I think it was a seventy eight hour train car, yeah. train trip so we Beijing spent a lot Beijing. of time in the dining car and they sort of we were the only Westerners or the, the only Westerners that I saw it was a long train I don't know twenty twenty five cars but anyway we spent a lot of time in the dining car and they found us to be very. Um, <clears throat> Interesting and, and intriguing. So, do they? I mean, I mean, seventy eight hours like that's a long train ride, but that's like not a ton of time to earn like you know the uh, the trust to get into the kitchen. So, like, you know, did they let you cook things? Did they show you stuff? Like, did they let you, like how did? You well, know? once we find that sort of the litmus test is once you show people in the culinary world that you know how to use a knife, they sort of let you into their club. Okay. So it's like, you know, they look at you like you've got three heads at first, and you're like, why do you want to be in this kitchen? And then when you show them that you have some skills, then they sort of lighten up a little bit and ease ease up. And what was the setup like? Was it just, you know, uh, was it like, did they use coal or the gas? I mean, like, what were you cooking on it? But, well, they were cooking on gas, but they had coal-fired, these huge coal-fired 
uh, tea urns that were every four wow. or five cars. It was really cool, and it was a very you know very vintage antique. You know, I don't know that I'm not I'm not up on my train models, but it, it you know it's probably a hundred years old that train. But but the the kitchen was traditional walks fired with gas and small, but yeah, small yeah. but like a, like kind of like a galley, right? A little bit like a galley. The chefs were all dressed with their, you know, pristine white coats, and they took their jobs absolutely with great pride. and And I think at first they just thought it was sort of funny that we were interested in the food. I mean, we literally didn't know what anything was on the menu, and we'd wait for other diners to come in and see what they order, and we'd just point at things. Um, you know, they serve warm beer called Piju at on on the train. There was no cold beer, and we spent a lot of time drinking warm beer and uh, eating some great food on the trains and yeah and they they took a shine to us and and then eventually yeah they let us hung, hang out with them and help do a little you know this and that would have been great if it was three months longer the train trip but <laughs> we have good memories did, 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 those... did you take have you did you take any of those dishes from that trip and that experience and bring them to uh to the restaurant well i mean our philosophy about the restaurant is like we've taken some people think it's a mishmash of different, you know, regions of China. We take sure. just our favorite dishes. So I don't think, I can't remember anything specifically from the train, but, like, definitely, you know, like, the twice-cooked pork kind of idea. Like, if we had it, uh, like, the best version we ever had on the train, then that's the one we kind of tried to replicate. Emulate, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then, so, I mean, and then obviously some years passed, so like, what kind of began the impetus for uh, Kings County? Well, we've always had the dream. I mean, ever since we worked in this Chinese restaurant, which was sort of a queer situation because it's in Vermont and it's run by, you know, an Anglo guy who's really loves Chinese culture and cuisine, but has and has sort of devoted his life to it. We just thought, wow, this is something that's really great, really interesting. I've had a lifelong love of Chinese food growing up in New York. Tracy has her own stories from Philly, but um, we've always wanted to do it. It's just always been a passion. So our first restaurant in New York was Stone Park, and at that time, I remember we had a debate. Do we want to go Chinese? Do we want to go contemporary American? Do we want to? And we just sort of felt a little insecure about going out on a limb at that time, but the second time around, we said, "You know what? We got to do this Chinese thing because we'll never, we'll never, we'll never, we'll never live with ourselves if we don't try it now." I mean, I have to say that you know, for years we were just we were scratching our heads at why we couldn't have a Chinese restaurant like the one that you've opened in you know this part of Brooklyn. So right. I think. I thank you on part of everyone else for oh, opening thanks, up and following into that dream. Well, because we've... so many times you had to just like go to a different part of the city, which is fine, but on a cold Sunday night, you're like, can we just go somewhere close? I mean, I was, right. in, I was in Chinatown this morning, and I live up in Greenpoint, and just getting down to Chinatown on the weekend, like it's like not like terrible, but it's also not the easiest or or more most convenient uh, way way to do it. Um, what is it like? I mean, was there one? kind of dish or a couple of dishes that like you know it's like you know these are the dishes that we're going to build the rest of the the menu around or or these since it's like it is a compendium of your favorite dishes well there's two sort of central themes i think in our in in the in our restaurant even though they're wildly divergent we both love dim sum we both love dumplings mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. one super focus that we that we you yeah know, those we long have, dumplings are yeah we hand make everything we like roll it out we try you know we try to do it with as much integrity as possible and then the other thing we like is we like at least i personally like really strong bold flavors so we sort of stick with, and I know this is like, you know, a, a gross generalization, but middle China and, you know, stronger flavors, the Sichuan peppercorn, a little bit of heat, like some pickled stuff in there. So those are two things that, you know, might be considered fusion from a, you know, from a Chinese perspective, but because we're, we're bouncing back between different regions in China. But those are the two that we really focus on and love. Amazing. Um, we're going to take a quick mm-hmm. musical break. Um, with a previous live performance um, from the band Suckers. And then we're going to be right back and we're going to talk about soy sauce. Sounds good. We'll be here. Okay. Thanks. Yeah.
Tuesday, May 17th, please join Snacking Tunes for the 9th Annual Barbecue Blowout. Our inaugural chefs are Kings County Imperial with Beats and Rhythms by Domino Records. Tickets are $10 in advance at bbqblowoutmay2016.eventbrite.com. Tickets include a plate of food and a complimentary Brooklyn brewery. We're happy to announce returning partners of Nikki Digital and Heritage Radio Network. We hope to see you there. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, that was such a good show. Those guys are some of the best. Um, so in putting your uh, menu together for uh, Kings County Imperial, how did you, I mean, first off, it's incredible. And I always have trouble picking 10 dishes that I want because I want it all. But how did you, how did you curate it? Like what made the cut? What did it make the cut? And what was the reasoning behind the, the items that went on the menu? Very good question. You know, we... Because we hadn't cooked Chinese in quite some time. I mean, to really do it right, you need woks and you need you need a whole lot of things that you, that aren't easily available in an, in a normal sort of Western style kitchen. So it's like, an, it's like learning another language. And we hadn't done it for a while. So when our we had a custom made uh, six hole wok stove built um, by uh, one of our partners. Who, who is Chinese, Chef George Wong, who's been a, a, in absolutely invaluable uh, resource for us. He had uh, a custom-built wok stove brought in, and it took us months to really get to where we wanted to be with that stove. So we cooked and cooked and cooked for friends, for family, for anybody mm-hmm. that we could we get to come through that door. Yeah. Yeah. So it was Lucky a, people. It was yeah. a lot of trial. Well, I don't know if they'd say that, but there was a, there was some severe misfires, but we we that that's how we got to where we are. We just cooked and and got a lot of feedback and ate as much as we could and and got to where we thought we had the base. But also like a lot of Chinese food is like a lot of Chinese restaurants have very massive menus. 
and that's yeah. because it's all it's all in the mise-en-place. Like everything is prepared beforehand, and when you have 120,000 BTU wok, that food is cooking like you cook. Each dish takes less than a minute to cook. It's all chopped and fired beforehand, and then you just you know it hits the wok, and bam, it's on the plate. And um, you know we wanted to just give a representation of all of our favorite things. So like crispy garlic chicken, we went down to, you know, we, we love this restaurant in Marlton, Pennsylvania, that has the best crispy garlic chicken we've ever had. And it's on every, you know, Chinese restaurant menu, you know, most in America. And this was the best. So Tracy went down there and cooked in their kitchen for two weeks. And we sort of, you know, figured out how they do it and then replicated that. And we did that dish by dish with all of our favorite things, which is why the menu from a regionality standpoint is a bit of a mishmash. That's, that's, I mean, that's fine. Oh, I mean, great. you know, <laughs> it's like it's like a greatest hit. You're like your personal collection of, of favorite favorite uh, dishes. Now, if for anyone who's coming in, you know, what would you recommend to take them through? Like, what is your one or two signature dishes, and why? Like, how does that represent like the 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 reason, the thesis behind the restaurant? Well, I mean, like Chinese food is all about balance, and most Southeast Asian cuisines are all about balance, and I don't know, I guess you could argue all food is about balance, but um, it's really important in Chinese, when you're, when you're doing a Chinese menu or you're you know, ordering for a table, to get kind of like different things, like some crispy things, some spicy things, some things that cool the palate if you're going to get some spicy things. Some, you know, you're marrying different textures and flavors and colors and all the you know, different proteins and vegetables all on the table rather than you know, on a single plate. So... You know, we really work hard to train our waiters to kind of like guide people through the experience who haven't or aren't familiar with it or, um, you know, just to kind of suggest stuff and, you know, bounce ideas back and forth. Like you have a noodle dish, you might want to try this or, you know, like that. So it's really all about balancing the different dishes. And the macchio. And the macchio. And the macchio, yeah. And all that and the macchio. And the macchio. Um, and also, like, let's not forget, like, the accoutrement, if you will, and your, your soy sauce, which I think is really incredible. Um, and the fact that you are making your own, it's on tap, which I've never heard of before. Um, tell us, like, a bit about the history of that and, like, how you met the, the family that, that makes it for you. Well, we did quite a bit of research um, that didn't really produce too many results for a few years. And then um, I ended up stumbling upon a blog of an English guy that spent a couple years traveling through China and Southeast Asia. And he had visited the, the soy fermentation fields of this family. And he, had, and he had explained it and he had named the family. And I ended up contacting them um, to no avail. And I, I ended up getting a voice message probably two or three months later all in Chinese anyway so began the relationship that we have we ended up traveling mm. over to southern China um, where the, it, the, it's a third generation family of soy makers they make it um, in fairly large quantities they sun ferment their soy still I mean a lot of China has gone to um, sort of an artificially stimulated chemically um, sort of induced heating process for soy, which takes about two days to produce soy. Uh, this family still ferments their soy from anywhere from uh, six months up to two or three years. Anyway, we, we build a relationship with them. We've been back multiple times. We have soy that's in uh, porcelain vats right now out in the in the sun along the Pearl River Delta, and we're getting ready for our first wow. large shipment. Um, we've, ha we've had smaller shipments come over, which we do have on tap. We, we use it in all of our cooking, but um, our first big shipment we're, we're just figuring out bottling and labeling and we're it's yeah we're we're taking the leap to build that relationship like i mean how did that you know how did that go i mean besides uh, culture like was the same thing like you had to show them knife skills and they're like all right we'll give you soy sauce like were you on the train or like how did how did that trust or how did that relationship kind of grow they actually were are very organized. They have a um, a show room where they have soy that they 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 we're not the only ones that they have this relationship with. They they make soy for um, you know for for other entities all over the world in in Taiwan and in Europe and Southeast Asia. All small batch, but 
so they were ve- they welcomed us wholeheartedly with you know very graciously with open arms. But we were very specific about what you know about the recipe we wanted. So we had a lot of trial and error. Yes, that's figuring true. out you that's know true. exactly what we wanted in it. We didn't want you know sodium benzoate or other preservatives. We wanted to have a certain flavor profile that we were looking for. And so there was a lot of there's there was and still is a lot of back and forth between us. It's amazing. Now we're super excited about you guys agreeing to kick off our ninth season of the barbecue. And you know, barbecue and smoking meats and things like that has long been a tradition in Chinese cooking. And we want to talk to you about the menu and and your approach to doing something that's like a grilling outside type of event. Well, yeah. Well, we got right as we speak. We got um, I think. 80 racks of ribs hanging in our, and we, yes, call it, we call it a duck oven. We hang them just, yes, like, just like you do with the ducks or pork. And, uh, yeah, we, we're, they marinate for three days, these ribs. They're slow-roasted, hanging for hours. We baste them every 15 minutes. Um, and, yeah, we're, gonna, we're psyched. We're, we're really excited. We, um, it's been absolute torture the last few days at the restaurant because there's these racks and racks of ribs everywhere, and everybody wants to eat them, and Josh is like, no, 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 that's for the barbecue. Hands off. Hands off. So we're doing, we're, um, in the tradition of balance, we're doing the ribs, we're doing our cold sesame noodle, and we're doing our spicy Sichuan cucumber salad. So that's going to be the... That's going to be the plate for the barbecue. Which we can't wait uh, for. And I wish you had just kind of brought like a preview here. <laughs> we should have. I, I know, know but we'll just uh, we'll eat our weight uh, in it. So um, we want to thank you for coming by. Um, Thanks so much pe- for having us. Yeah, of course. We're super excited for Tuesday. Where can people find you uh, online, social media, physical address? Yep, we're at kingscoimperial.com on Facebook, Instagram, uh, website. Or just better yet, come by 20 Skillman Avenue in uh, Williamsburg between Meeker and Larimer. And now you're doing brunch. Now we're doing we're dim doing Sunday dim sum. Oh my yeah, gosh! Okay, dim well I'll just. I mean, it's it's not Chinatown, <laughs> but it, it's a, so much closer. I'm very excited. Uh, how, how is the how is the brunch crowd? Because I know that the Brooklyn brunch crowd have they they taken to the Chinese type of uh, cuisine. You know, it's it's a slow burn. I think Greg had that. We haven't advertised yeah. or put it out there. Like this is sort of the first public announcement we've ever made about the the dim sum brunch but um we don't do carts like traditional you know dim sum sure. places because we found out early on that they don't really work with a concrete floor <laughs> um, but um so everything's fresh made to order but we have you know many traditional dim sum items radish cake shomai different kinds of dumplings and we got salads our, noodles and our king's mary which is our take on our bloody mary with a little bit of house soy and some uh, sichuan peppercorn salt mm. in it so yeah that's okay. our little nod to uh the traditional brunch scene sold well thank <laughs> you for- Bo- booze and dumplings I, I don't see how you could go wrong come on by next sunday uh well thanks for coming yeah, by uh we have michael days up live uh in studio but we have one of our all-time favorites um from she keeps bees uh, live from Snacking Tunes. We will be right back. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Don't you tell them what to do. Just sit yourself down. And don't do these things to you.
destroy this room, right, Andy? Ready? Okay. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. All right. Michael and crew, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey there. Uh, you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Sure, absolutely. Here we got uh, uh, on the mandolin. We have we got Dominic Leslie and uh, Jen Larson. She's gonna be uh, singing here with me, and on the bass, Larry Cook. Uh, welcome from across the room. I mean, across the trailer. Um, I'm so excited you're here because the record you just put out. It's such an amazing concept that, like, I think people kind of like dream about that an artist would do, but you actually did it. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's called Orchids and Violence on Nonsuch, which is equally just like one of the best labels that's ever existed in the history uh, of labels. I agree, yeah. Um, just if you are, are into like music that is just good across all type of genres, just like just go listen to everything they've ever ever done. Yeah, they've got a pretty amazing output over the last uh, you know fifty years or so. It's it's pretty inc- it's pretty incredible. Um, but what you've done, and just to, to, for the people who um, are not prepared for this episode, um, you took pretty much the same song and did it twice. Yeah, it's the same twelve songs. I started with twelve uh, mostly traditional songs, or you know like old time and bluegrass and you know old murder ballads and whatnot, and. Uh, I did the same track list on two discs. Uh, so the first disc is like straight ahead bluegrass, which is pretty much what we're going to be playing today. And then, and the uh, the second disc, I did the same songs in the same order, but it's kind of an experimental electric album. So I reinterpreted them kind of from the ground up in some cases. And I'm sure that you'll probably get this question asked you through all the interviews. But like, where did this come from, and, and why <laughs> did you feel the desire to do this? Well, I. You know, um, I came out of bluegrass music. My, that's something I grew up with. So it, it, my parents played fiddle and banjo, so it was in the household growing up. And and uh, so, you know, it's always just been a part of, of you know, who I am, as, you know, personally and, and musically, and, and something I've, I've really gravitated back to, in the, especially in the last 10 years of my life or so. I just really ended up doing primarily bluegrass music. But, um, you know, along the way, it definitely gotten way into other forms of music, you know, experimental music, jazz, noise rock, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these, uh, you know, different influences are, are also part of me. And uh, so when I, I wanted to record an album and it was trying to figure out what sort of album I wanted to do. And I, I knew I wanted to do something that really kind of hung together as a piece. You know, I didn't want to just kind of record a collection of tunes and kind of have it be a bunch of singles. So uh, and I didn't want to do sort of a mishmash of, of too many influences. I wanted it to be kind of about one thing. But then I couldn't really figure out what, you know, whether whether to <laughs> kind of do the traditional bluegrass thing, which has really been a big part of you know what I've done in the last ten years, or or express some of these kind of more um, experimental ideas. And so this was a solution. This double album concept was was kind someone of someone called a solution. <laughs> <laughs> someone called like masochistic. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, it was an opportunity to take these old songs, which you know, many of which have been around for for hundreds of years. Uh, who knows how long? Some of these old murder ballads are you know, really hundreds of years old, and have had a lot of uh, life. You know, even before bluegrass music was a thing, and uh, you know, so they just you know they they get performed in in the the style of of whoever's performing them. You know, whether it's you know seventeen fifty or. 1900 or 1950 or, or now and you know everyone just kind of brings their own um, experience to it so uh, it was just kind of taking part of the process of you know people have for years you know, hundreds of years continually reworked these songs so just getting to explore them in 
you know, very much in the bluegrass tradition, uh, which, which, you know, again, I, I love and, uh, primarily work in, um, you know, with a, with a band of musicians that I just really wanted to get together in a room, but then also, yeah, take the same songs. Sorry. Do you find that every time you explore a song or re-explore it, it extends its life and gives it a new, a new lease on it? Well, I believe that's that's what these songs are meant for. You know, this, these songs have been around for hundreds of years. You know, they're 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 enduring because they have a way of uh, they, they are sort of a template or a container for for the experience and the emotions of whoever's singing them. And so, uh, you know, everyone who sings these songs, it's, it's a folk tradition, and so everyone sort of brings their own perspective to it. And um, you know, these are. Uh, two musical perspectives that I was able to present uh, <laughs> on, this, on this recording, you know, uh, the bluegrass and the sort of more experimental side, which also gave me an opportunity to, to, to kind of explore the contrasts uh, and versions and kind of the, the puzzle for me to solve. <laughs> which I think we definitely want to uh, address, but because you, you said it twice, um, murder ballads. Uh, what makes a good murder ballad for the uninitiated? <laughs> oh man, well, there's so many murder ballads to choose from, and. and is that like a can? I mean, I, I, is that it's a canon? Yeah, music? it's a genre. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's, there's a bunch of great ones. You know, uh, I recorded Pretty Polly uh, on this, on these albums. Um, you know, the Knoxville Girl, Omi Wise. Um, you know, Banks of the Ohio. It goes, goes on and on. There are so many of them that are that are done to this day, and uh, they're all so brutal. <laughs> I think like what makes, the- like what makes like a really good like a like a like a torch song like. You know, you hear a guitar and you're like, damn, that's really good. They like they really love that person. Like what makes like a good murder ballad? Well, it's 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 you know, it's gotta be gruesome and brutal. I mean I think people right. sort of need uh that artistic engagement with with you know, with death, with violence, with uh brutality. Um you know, we have that in uh, you know in in horror movies and action movies. You know, and it's, I think it's 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 important for people to kind of get to engage in that in, in a song, you know, rather than in real life experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just got threatened on the radio. You all heard this. Um, well, we... you know, that's why we have these songs. You know, they, you know so they've been songs that express you know all aspects of, of human experience and yeah. and. Um, you know, and so in these singing these songs and hearing these songs, you're, you're you feel this kind of pathos for the victim, and uh, you want the the perpetrator to be brought to justice. And um, you know, one of my favorite ones, uh, Knoxville Girl, which was uh, most famously recorded by the Leuven Brothers. I mean, part of uh, is that they record that song in such a kind of upbeat. Manner, they're like, I met a little girl in Knoxville. And it's very almost kind of like upbeat and happy sounding, like they're they're at a party or something. But it's this gruesome, gruesome murder, and that sort of makes it all the more twisted, right? That it's, you know, uh, I've also there's a great recording of Nick Cave uh, singing Knoxville Girl, which is totally the other way. Oh, he's man. like, he seems way into it. Yeah, yeah, but, but it's what you he's want. Like, he's like, wish I was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, can we hear? Uh, what are you going to play for us first? Sure. Well, there's not a murder ballad. No, at okay, all. no. Actually, this <laughs> After all this talk about old songs, we're actually going to uh, lead off with the song that I recorded. This this is the one song on the record that's not an old traditional number. It's actually by a, uh, a Seattle band called Mother Love Bone, who are they were oh, yeah. a, a proto grunge yeah. band who, who I really love. Yeah, they're wonderful. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, and they broke up. Some of their members went on to form Pearl Jam and, and other bands. Um, anyways, but I thought this would make a good bluegrass song. Okay. It's called Stargazer. Wonderful. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> no murders. No murders. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
It's like what came first, the the bluegrass song or the rock version? Um. Well, I mean, this. Uh, I'm sorry. When I was arranging it. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, more than that. Like when we were putting the two kind of like records together. Um, did, did you do all like all the bluegrass versions first, or did you do a bluegrass one and then you did the rock version of uh-huh. that? Like, how did that? How did that? Come yeah. To be? Well, well, the electric versions uh, kind of started out maybe about eight years ago. I, I had. Uh, kind of come up with a batch of arrangements. I was, at the time, playing drums uh, like and guitar and singing at the same time. Mm. So sitting down, and my wife was playing bass. So we had kind of arranged, uh, you know, maybe about six or seven old bluegrass songs for that format. And those, that was sort of the seed of the electric record. And I, I knew mm. I want, you know, what direction I wanted to take that in for the recording uh, to some degree. And then, so, uh, then, you know, I picked the the, the songs that were going to go on each album, and since we did, we recorded the bluegrass record first, mm-hmm. so those got mm-hmm. finished and, and arranged first, and then 
of course, once that was set and I knew what that was going to sound like, then the, the ideas started continued to evolve as far as how to arrange the electric stuff, because it was a uh, you know sort of a, a puzzle and a, a project of uh, you know kind of getting each album to flow differently and really have its own identity that would stand alone, you know, without needing the other album. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know. Making sure each song, uh, you know, was 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 different, and you know, if you did listen to them side by side, there would be some interesting contrast there. Well, can you talk a little bit about the difference in the recording process for the two albums, uh, and just and your approach to each one? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The recording process was was really different for the for the bluegrass record. Uh, we did it all live in a big room uh, over three days. Uh, recorded tape. Uh, in this in the old first uh, church in Brooklyn, with, um, they have an upper hall there, which is amazing sounding for acoustic music. And so, we just did it with four microphones, uh, four tracks, and just you know got everyone there playing together, bleeding into the mics, and just kind of recording the sound of the room. So the kind of the concept was it was kind of a recorded event, mm. you know, no. Uh, you know, we didn't really do any overdubs or edits, or we did a few edits, but you know, it was, just, it was basically you know a live. Event. And, and then for those who can't see in the room here, they're all just standing around one mic. This like I feel like we just went back to like how radio used to happen with <laughs> yeah. you guys. It's just, like yeah. it's pretty amazing. Yeah, a lot of bluegrass uh, bands will perform like the whole band will perform around a single condenser mic. You know? Yeah, it's it's, it's inc- I feel blessed. It's oh, cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> we prefer it. Yeah. Um, anyways, but the electric record was done over about three months in my uh, I did most of it in my home studio and uh, you know some of it in other rooms and. Um, I played most of the instruments uh, myself. I had uh, my wife, Jesse Carter, played bass on it, and uh, we had a cameo in one song by uh, Tony Trishka on the banjo. But everything else, I just tracked myself. So it was, it was, you know, not at all done live. It was, you know, a layered studio creation, and that was kind of part of the uh, part of the um, concept there. You know, and kind of creating the contrast is to have the recording processes being very different. Uh, I mean, three days versus three months, you know. That's, yeah. <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a difference. Um, I mean, and for people who, who are listening to them side by side, I mean, you don't need to give away all the secrets, but is there, like, anything or any, like, particular pairing of tracks that you would point out that you, like, were, were like, happy or surprised by, like, how they sounded side by side? Well, uh, I would, well, maybe it's a good time to bring up the vinyl release that just came out last week. Uh, the, the double CD, which came out at the end of February, is called Orchids and Violence, and then we just released a vinyl edition called Violence and Orchids. Um, and the, the difference is that it's just that vinyl edition is just one disc, and it takes five songs, f- five each from the bluegrass and mm-hmm. the electric discs, and then kind of interleaves them. So you get the bluegrass oh, wow. version of June Apple, the electric version of June Apple, and it's and there's a whole sequence that's kind of designed to sort of highlight the contrast between the tracks. So um, I, I would encourage you to... Check that out and <laughs> decide for yourself. <laughs> and, and which one is which? Which is the bluegrass and which is the the electric? Is it orcas? Which one's orcas? Which one's violence? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I won't uh, commit. The whole thing okay. is just called orcas and violence. Okay. you can you can think of that what you will. Maybe while we're like doing a murder ballad, I'll get you to tell me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, do you want to play another one for us? Sure. Um, I'm going to do a, a song while Larry on bass. We're going to give you a little break. You can. Uh, Go have some whiskey and pizza. <laughs> but uh, Jen Larson and I are going to sing this as a duet and with Dominic on the mandolin. Um, recorded this one uh, on the record. I uh, did as a duet with Sarah Jarose. Um, and it's written by uh, Whit Kana, who's uh, uh, his wife Barbara down in Atlanta, are my musical godparents. Um, so I'm sending this out to, to Whit and Barbara. Um, what song called Dark Angel. It's not, it's not a murder ballad, but there is death we're getting there involved. Yeah, we're, get, yeah, we're yeah. getting there we're getting close <laughs> yeah, we've got, we got three songs today so um, it's called Dark Angel
So, uh, records out, vinyls out. Yes. You had some release shows. Yes. What yep. comes this summer? Well, uh, actually, there's one more release show. We're okay. having a vinyl release show this Thursday in in Brooklyn uh, at Littlefield, which is in Gowanus on uh, DeGrasse Street, and uh, so that's going to feature both the electric band and the and the bluegrass. Band. I was going to ask, like, how how does the live? Obviously, we get the bluegrass, but how do the the live shows work? Uh, and yeah. how does like the set list work too? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, for the for the CD release shows we did in, in, New, in New York uh, back in March, yeah, it was the same as what we're doing this Thursday, which is the have the bluegrass band play in the first set and the electric band play in the second set. Mm. Um, for this this since this is the vinyl release show, each band is going to start out playing the five songs that are on the. Uh, the vinyl release. Oh wow! Um, so at the beginning of each set, you'll get to hear the, the the you know the contrasting versions of those songs. That's incredible. Um, and I, I mean, you're obviously doing double duty, but is anybody else uh, wearing two hats or just two bases? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> on this Thursday on, on playing banjo with me is uh, Tony Trishka, who's you know legendary uh, banjo player. So really lucky to have him and. Uh, Tony is the only musician other than myself who played on both discs. Mm. He played on one song on each disc, and so he's gonna. We're gonna do that song, uh, "Darling Corey," which actually we're gonna close with today. But um, you'll hear Tony playing on the bluegrass and on the electric versions. But other than that, the, the band is different. Uh, so, and then um, are you taking? Are you able to take both out on the road, or do you have to to pick? <laughs> no, it's not really road. Um, Material there to, to, to travel with with two bands. Um, um, we're, we're doing. I'm playing with the bluegrass band. We're doing Rocky Grass Festival out in Colorado. Oh, great bluegrass festival, and um, and I'm doing a trio tour in June, uh, June 9th, 10th, and 11th uh, with Noam Bikilny on banjo and Brittany Haas on fiddle, who both played on on the record. So that'll be the bluegrass sides. We're playing. World Cafe in Philadelphia, uh, Cafe 939 in Boston, and the Parlor Room in Northampton, Mass. Um, so, yeah, that's going on the road. And the electric band, which uh, is now called Wax Lion, um, we're doing uh, we're doing mostly uh, New York shows, um, and that's with uh, Jesse Carter on bass and um, Kid Millions on drums, who oh, really? plays uh, yeah oh. Oneida and with oh, uh, yeah. Laurie Anderson and many other 
uh, musicians. Uh, he's he's incredible, and so it's been a total joy working with him. If I if I had known him, I, I would have gotten him to play on the record. <laughs> I actually I actually uh, played drums myself on the record, and uh, and then uh, started working with uh, with with Kid Millions on you know further release shows, and and that uh, it's hopefully gonna kind of uh, be an ongoing uh, project um, under the under the name Wax Lion. Uh, well, before we, we have one more song, uh, kind of final question is, from really diving in and approaching these songs in like two very different ways, did it give you like any deeper appreci- appreciation either for the way the songs are constructed or the subject of the songs themselves? Well, you know, you know these songs are very malleable and... You know, if, to me, it's like it's a way of honoring the songs. You know, to to, to show that they work in, in different ways. Um, you know, some bluegrass purists might be offended that I'm adding, you know, fuzz pedals and a bunch of weird stuff in the, on the second record. But I would argue that it's it's actually, you know, it's it's out of deep respect of the songs and of the tradition of these songs. You know, to do them two ways, and so. Um, you know, you know some, some of them are about something specific like a murder or, or whatever but a lot of these old songs are, are not really necessarily about anything in particular or they don't need to be and so I think they're they're made you know what I think it shows me is that, that they're made to just kind of for each performer to kind of put their own uh, you know experience into it and I think that that you know, again that's why they're around for hundreds of years and you know they'll, some of them will probably still be around 100 years from now people will be doing all sorts of different weird things with them I hope yeah. um, well thanks for coming <laughs> thank all, you for all of us. Um, where thanks. can people find you get the record uh, sign up for tour dates all the good stuff yep well uh, you can get all that information at my website michaeldaves.com uh, D-A-V-E-S um, you can get the uh, the vinyl and the uh, CD through Nonesuch uh, Records website uh, and you know Amazon iTunes all that stuff can't get the vinyl from iTunes. That's, that's I think, what we yeah, like about vinyl. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but... <laughs> the one trick. Um, well, we want to thank you for coming by. Thank you to Tracy and Josh from Kings County okay. Imperial. Please come to the barbecue on Tuesday. Uh, shout out to Mom, Dad, Ornella, and the whole uh-huh. new Meatball Ace family. And, and yeah, uh, Bresnitz. Shout out to Meatball. Shout out to Ahana. Uh-huh. Shout out to the West Coast. Uh, okay. Hello, West Coast. Yeah, I gave up again for uh, Dominic Leslie on the mandolin. Yeah. Jen Larson singing with me and Larry Cook on bass. Uh, uh, great to get to work with these guys. Yeah, thank you for coming by. What are you going to take us out with? Darling Corey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, have a good rest of the week. Yeah, you too. Thank you.
sound. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.